will go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to be looking at this chapter in its entirety, minus the first verse we covered last week. <clears throat> this chapter, its theme is repentance, and this is again an important subject for us as believers, something that, as the confession said, that all pastors should preach and that that we should all understand as believers. And so as we come to this passage concerning repentance, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help with it. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to this passage in the book of 1 Samuel, we pray that you would teach us from it. Repentance is a seemingly simple idea, but yet we, being who we are and struggling with the sin that we still have, make it in our own likeness. We make it how we want it to be. We don't follow your model for repentance, but we follow our own. And so, Lord, help us to see what repentance looks like. Help us to know what you require of us. Convict us of our sin and lead us to the truth of your word. In your name we pray. Amen. As I read through this passage, it reminded me of the time that I stole candy when I was a kid. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, through my late elementary and middle school years, I walked from school to my grandmother's house, which was like just a couple of blocks away. And many times on the way home, I would stop at the little grocery store, like one of two in my hometown. Both of them are very small now. There's only this one there. Um, and I would stop there on my way home. I didn't have any money. I just liked the fact that I could go in the store on my own. I know that's weird. So, well, one time I was hungry and I wanted some candy, which, of course, now I realize as an adult that that doesn't really compute, you know, hungry candy. But as a kid, I thought that my hunger could be always cured by candy. And so I walked over to the candy display. They had one of these big, you know, these big cabinets that had all the candies in it. And I was like, I want some. So I took a piece and put it in my pocket and walked outside and ate it. And it was easy. I was like, wow, that was, that was nice. Didn't have to pay anything for it. Well, I did a few times after that, never taking more than one piece. But I did like that four or five times, and I was a now hardened criminal. And so the next time, I was like, you know, I should do this. I should really get a lot more candy this next time. So I went for the big heist. I was going to get a handful of candy this time. You know, and I was like in fourth or fifth grade. and. How big was my hand? So maybe five pieces this time instead of the, the usual one. And so I walked in. No one was watching. At least I thought no one was watching. Probably was. And I took it. And then I ran to my grandma's house as fast as I could where my mom was waiting. And she asked, where did you get the candy? Because in my excitement of, of over my big heist, I had forgot to stash the candy. And I still had it in my hands running like this. And so I immediately turned into a, a puddle of water and wept like a little baby. And I was grounded from video games and everything else. And the worst part is I actually had to go tell the store manager. who thought the whole thing was really funny as I was standing there and crying in his office. So was I sorry for stealing? That's the question. As like a, probably a 10-year-old kid, was I sorry or sorry for stealing? No, I was sorry that I got caught. 
I was sorry that I wasn't going to be allowed to go back to the store alone for a long time. And they they always watch me. Even now, I think when I go into the store, they're still kind of watching me where I go, since the same people work there. Really strange, I know. Uh, so I think the story this this is a small thing, you know, stealing little pieces of candy from the grocery store, but it presents a little an interesting idea that I often think of in the context of stories like this from my childhood. What is the difference between feeling sorrow, real sorrow, for your sin and simply being upset that you got caught? There's a difference. We all hate to come to face to face with the consequences for our sin. Whether we're four or 40, it doesn't matter. We don't want to face the consequences of the things that we've done wrong. That's just simple. Many times we're simply sorry that we got caught are sorry for the consequences that we're now having to face, rather than the actual sin and the implications of it. True repentance, which is different than from simple sorrow, is really what begins to mature us as believers. And I think it brings the consequences to bear and our sin to bear on our lives and what it means and what it means for others around us, what it means for our worship, what it means for our Lord and Savior Jesus. And I think we begin to see sin as a larger thing than just something that we do wrong. It's a plague in which there's only one real cure, and that's Jesus Christ. And so in the text today, we're going to be exploring this idea of repentance, what it looks like in the life of a believer, and we'll also look at the mercies that the Lord gives to his people who are repentant, And how the Lord is the one who deserves all the glory for that. Uh, We'll look at this in three points. Putting away the veils, driving out the enemies, and lifting up the Ebenezer. And so with that, let's read the text together. Let's stand together as we do that. 1 Samuel chapter 7, starting at verse 2 and reading through the end of the chapter. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods of the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. 
But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not enter again into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So just a little review from last week. Remember... The Ark of the Covenant was brought back to Israel, and it was before it, before that it was went on a tour of the Philistine cities and wrecked havoc just by being there. The Philistines delivered it back in the most impossible way. Remember the the cow with the or the two cows with the calves and the brand new cart, and and there was just this impossible way, and the cows went straight into Israel. But it worked because it was the Lord's will. The people of Israel worshiped the Lord. They rejoiced the coming of the ark. And then you have this man in verse 1 of chapter 7 named Eliezer. And he has come on the scene. And the ark's going to be housed with him at Kiriath-Jerim. He's likely a descendant of Aaron at some Levitical line of priests. And it was during that time that the text says that the people of the Lord lamented after the Lord. Twenty years. We'll get to that in a moment. And first, I just want to note Eliezer's name, which means God our help in the Hebrew. And later in the text, we're going to see a place that Samuel calls Ebenezer, which means the rock of our help. So not to borrow too much from the later verses, I'm always amazed at how these stories in the Old Testament in particular, I think, are wrapped up in these themes, which you see this idea of God our help at the beginning and this rock our help there at the end. And so what are we supposed to gather from these this passage? This is about the Lord our help. And I think this is a great way to work through the Old Testament, to pick out these themes and to see them over and over again. This theme is a constant one in the Old Testament, obviously the God, our help, and especially here in Samuel. And so after we get this first bit of Israel weeping for their sin, we have to remember that the Lord alone is our help, even in that. That we would that we would feel any sorrow for our sin at all is a grace of our Lord Jesus. And that we'd call upon his name as a result of that is yet another grace that he gives us. And so with that, let's look at the first idea of putting away the bales. 
And so the first verse, again, the first uh, verse that we looked at in verse 2, contains the words, And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is after the ark came home to Kiriath-Jerim. What does this mean? Well, the word is kind of like the equivalent of our word, wah. What do we say that for? But when someone's crying, we say, wah, wah. Well, Hebrew, and all languages for that matter, have those types of words too that sound like they are. You remember English that was called an automatopoeia? You guys remember the English? So this is probably an automatopoeia in Hebrew. This, this word for lamenting. They were literally crying for 20 years after the Lord. Why were they crying? Well, if you look at the context, what's going on here? The ark's come back. The ark left because of their sin. And when they, when it came back, what happened? Seventy men of Israel were killed because they looked upon the ark. And so from the context, we can gather that it was their sin, probably, that made them weak. The death of those experienced that the ark arrived, the feeling of having done wrong against the Lord, and now seeking the ark returned, and just sobbing in a way of for their sin, but also kind of in a relief that the ark is back. And so you can imagine this lamenting that's going on after the Lord for 20 years. This crying is directed toward the Lord, not to get his attention necessarily, not like crying out to the Lord, but is directed to him nonetheless. And so in verse 3, Samuel the prophet shows back up after several chapters where he was gone in 20 years or so. Now he's a grown man. And he puts the people to the test with their crying. Crying over your sin is one thing, but what Samuel has to say to them is quite another. Look at verse 3. He says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. What's he saying? Well, if this crying means anything at all, then put away your idols. If you're really sorry for your sin, then stop doing it. You know, I often say to my kids, don't say sorry unless you really mean it. How do you show you mean it? By discontinuing the act that you're doing. You know, if you apologize for hitting your sister and then you go and do it again, that's just going through the motions, right? It's not, you're not really sorry. You're just sorry that I said something about it. And so I take that a step further. Not only that, but what must there be? There's not just a sorrow of, over our sin. There's not just a ceasing that activity, but there's a change of heart. One that sees sin as a real problem in our lives. A, a sin that is worthy of death and needs to receive restoration and forgiveness from it. A need for redemption because of it. And granted, those are deep things for kids. Those are deep things for all of us. But repentance is a very real part of a Christian life. And I would even go so far as to say without repentance, there is no Christian life. And so Samuel's instructions weren't just to put away their idols, but what after that? Put away your idols 
and then direct your hearts to the Lord. I mean, consider this. Samuel's over this large group of people. It says all Israel there gathered there in Mizpah. This, this giant group of people, and he could have, they could have easily hidden their idols for a few days until the tide of these feel-good emotions had passed over them and then taken them back out like nothing ever happened. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Reminds me of like youth retreats when I was a kid. You go get to be on some kind of spiritual high for a few days and then you get to come home like nothing ever happened and no one really ever asked you about it. You just kind of had that thing that one time at that place and then now you're back to normal. You know, those few days of mountaintop maybe even convince us that we're a pretty good person and that there's no real need of repentance. As a former youth pastor, I can say with certainty that that is a prevailing idea among youth, and even a lot of parents and pastors and everybody in the church for that matter, that this mountaintop experience completely shrouds the need for real repentance, for daily devotion. If you have these few days a year, maybe a couple times a year, then those kind of define you as a Christian and the rest of your life really doesn't. It's really sad. We all know what we're talking about there. We all have experienced that. We all know what that feels like. And so what is his exhortation to the people? Direct your hearts to the Lord. Don't just hide your idols when it feels good. But turn away from them. Turn to the Lord. What is that? What, what word do we use? Turning away from our sin, turning to the Lord, that is repentance. Serve him only. Stop visiting the temple of the Baals and the Ashtaroths. Temples full of sin and debauchery, more like brothels than houses of worship. Serve the Lord, and he will deliver you. That isn't to say that he delivers us. Because we earn that with our repentance. Let's be careful with that. Ralph Davis, a commentator, one of my favorite Old Testament commentators, said this on that. He says, genuine repentance is the proper preparation for God's mercy. Not that repentance coerces such mercy. There is no merit in such repentance, but there is no saving help without such repentance. And so the merit due for our salvation is from whom? Jesus Christ. Yet in order to be saved, what does that heart changed by Christ have to do? Turn from our sins and turn to our God. We are only led to repent because of the Lord's intervention in our sinful lives. And so I hope that this is instructive for us, uh, that simply feeling sorry for our sins is not enough. It's definitely a part of it, and be sure of that. Show me someone who's not sorry for their sins, I'll show you an unbeliever. Even a lot of unbelievers are sorry for their wrongdoing. But this is not the full idea of repentance. Genuine repentance is putting away your sin and turning to the Lord. It requires both doesn't mean that we still won't struggle with that particular sin that we've repented from. And so don't let anyone tell you that if you've actually repented, then you'll never sin again. That's not right. 
I mean, if that was right, then we would eventually be Jesus, right? Isn't that some of the teaching that, that's been out there, that we can somehow turn to this holy being that doesn't sin? No, absolutely not. I wish we could. But that's not the idea of that. If we did that, then it'd be about us. It'd be about our own merit. We still need Jesus. What it does mean is that we are turned to the Lord for help as the only one who can not only help us to turn away from sin, but also to direct our hearts towards him more and more as we grow in grace. And we learn this over time as believers. I think this must be an active part of our lives as believers. And I think I regularly, you know, and all of us hear this and see this, we regularly see Christians talking about besetting kinds of sins, sins that that we just struggle with on and off. And the crux of their talk about these sins isn't their repentance, but it's the judgment they receive from other people because of their sin. You know that Christians get this all the time. Well, you can't judge me. That's kind of the new hip thing to say if you're a Christian who likes to, to not to not act like one. All right? Their sorrow has nothing to do with their actual sin. Their sorrow has to do with their reaction of others. In a church, we should live in such a way to be honest about our sins. With one thing, and with we should live to be honest about our sins with one another as long as it is prudent and appropriate. Obviously, we don't want to just say, listen, everybody, to everything that I do wrong. But there's, there's times to be honest about it and times to just pick one person and talk with that person. But we do so, and when we do so, the judgment of others should be the least of our concerns. We should be doing so out of a right heart to not only gather together people who can help us walk in our sins, but also being honest before the Lord. Our concern should be keeping short accounts. Again, keeping short accounts with the Lord. Taking all of our sins to Him. Turning back to him because we know that he's faithful to forgive. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 1 real quick. A familiar passage, but I want to read it in the context of this passage that we've looked at. Alright. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. And again, consider how he's dealing with this this same idea of repentance versus non-repentance in the life of a believer. It says this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So again, what's the difference here? It's darkness versus light. Are we bringing our sins to the light? Are we dealing with them? 
Are we turning away from them? Are we turning to the Lord? Or are we walking in darkness? Are we hiding our idols just for a time only to turn back to them after a time of sorrow so that everyone thinks we're really upset? There is a difference. And I would say that the difference is walking in Christ versus walking in darkness. And so that brings us to the second point, driving out the enemies. So Samuel has all the people there at verse 5 gather at Mizpah. And he, the intention is he's going to pray for them as a priest. It says that they drew water and poured it out and they fasted. These two things are being considered together, you know, pouring out water. They didn't necessarily live in the rainforest, so there wasn't a ton of water available. And so pouring out water, uh, fasting, these were both ideas of self-denial, ways of cleansing out all their other needs except for the Lord, relying on the Lord alone. They acknowledged their sin was against the Lord. They said, we have sinned against the Lord. That's good. That's a sign of repentance. That's a sign of them recognizing that their sin isn't a small thing, but they have upset the Lord Almighty. And while this is going on, we kind of have this little meanwhile situation going on here. Meanwhile, the Philistine army is gathering. They see that the people of Israel are fasting. They're tossing all their water out. They've come to this place called Mizpah, and they're all penitent. And so the Philistine army is gathering, hoping to catch Israel off guard. Israel catches wind of this. And, of course, Israel becomes frightened, because that's what Israel does. And they say to Samuel, what do they say to him? Do not stop praying for us and our deliverance. And then what does Samuel do? I love this. He sacrifices a young lamb. Hopefully that perks your New Testament ears a little bit, which he calls the whole burnt offering. The whole burnt offering in Leviticus is for the atonement of sin. And the Lord answered their prayer. And how did he answer it? It says with a thundering boom. Now, understand the way people thought back then. The Philistines and a lot of these pagan kinds of religions, knew that behind the scenes of the physical battle was a very spiritual one. And we would agree with them on that. But they just thought it took place in the sky. Like up in the sky, there was this battle where their gods were battling it out, and they were battling it out on the ground. And the battle in the air would would kind of represent what was going on on the ground as well. But when the Philistines hear this thunderous boom, what is their thought? Uh Uh-oh, the God of the Israelites is back. And they remember what he did to Dagon. They remember what he did all over their cities to Baal, to Asherah, and whoever, whoever he came in contact with, what did he do? He defeated. And so they're panicked. And what does Israel do in response to this? Well, on the other end of that spectrum is Israel, and they're empowered by this. They rout the Philistines. They drive them to this small village that's called Beth Car, which interestingly enough means house of the lamb. The other day, I was talking with a friend, and he uh, messaged me with some needed some advice uh, for something that was recently going on in a friend of his's life. And uh, his he has a friend whose son recently came out as a homosexual. And he was asking me, he said, what should I do? How should I uh, counsel my friend? 
because his friend was saying things like this, well, I'm going to fix him. And he said, how can I counsel my friend? Should he fix him? Should he kick him out of the house? Those were his questions. And my answer, thankfully I had been studying this text, what does Samuel do for his people? He prays for them. What is the idea here concerning their sin? He's going to pray for them. What does he show them? He sacrifices a lamb so that their their sins can be atoned for. Do we have to do that now? Should this friend go and sacrifice a lamb so that his son's sin can be atoned for? No. What should he do for him? He should preach the gospel to him. Pray for him. Preach the gospel to him is what I said. Those are my That was my advice. What did Samuel do when the people, again, wrestled with idolatry? He prayed for them. He made atonement for them. What should we do when we wrestle with sin? Pray. Ask for, for prayer from the people around us. Please pray for me. I'm struggling with this sin. We should go to our high priest. Who's our high priest? Jesus Christ. He's also the sacrifice. He has atoned for every sin that we have, that we have had, that we currently have, that we will have. There is no amount of shouting at a person to just stop it, just get better, fix your sin that is ever going to work outside of the direct intervention of God Almighty who answers prayers of his weak people because he is strong. He is the one that helps us with our sin. There's no amount of get better that will ever work. We need a Savior, and Jesus Christ is that Savior. We see our sins defeated when we realize that the weapons that we need to fight with are not physical and that the battle has already been won. Our sin, once and for all, was nailed to the cross. Our spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, atoned for our sins, his children. He came to save us from our sins, and that's what he did. We worship the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the victory that we have. And so whatever sin that we struggle with, repent, turn from it, know that the Son of God has nailed it to the cross, and he has instructed us to go and sin no more. That's victory. And so lastly, we look at this idea of lifting up our Ebenezer. They have this victory. Verse 12, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin, called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. He takes this stone and he sets it as a marker of victory. He calls it Ebenezer, which means the rock of our help in the Hebrew. And he says, Till now the Lord has helped us. So I love this. Where are they at? They're at this little village called Bethkar that's mentioned nowhere else in Scripture. That's, that means literally the house of the Lamb. There at the house of the Lamb, Samuel creates a monument called the Rock of Our Help. It's incredible. You think this man trusted the covenant promises of God? Absolutely. And then what resulted from this? The Philistines never attacked again under Samuel's reign as judge. The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines even. 
They just thought by sending the ark back they were going to get away. No. The hand of the Lord was against them. All the cities were restored to Israel. They had peace with this other nation called the Amorites, who was actually living within their bounds. So they have peace outside and inside. Israel enters into peace. If you've read Judges, you know that this is kind of the way, right? They enter into peace, much like all the judges before Samuel. Here is this period of peace after casting out their enemies and returning to the Lord. And so, church, we should hear this. Jesus, once and for all, has defeated our greatest enemies, sin and death. There are no greater enemies than those, and they are defeated. We'll struggle with sin and death in this world. We're all going to sin. We're all going to die unless the Lord decides to come back. But sin and death have ultimately been driven out, and we have peace through Jesus Christ. And he's one that lives among us. He's one that lives in us. In that sense, we have become the house of the Lamb. And the rock of our help is always with us. That hymn that we sang this morning, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, it says this. And consider this verse again in the context of what we just talked about. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, and hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Here I raise my Ebenezer, showing this is how I've done it. His help is how I've done this. And with his good pleasure, I'll arrive at home. Where is that? Does that mean I'll come, I'll go home from church and be there safely? Sure. At this very temporal kind of way, but eternally, what does it mean? He's going to bring me home. Because he found me when I was a stranger, wandering away, and he rescued me. And the way that he did that is he gave his blood for me. And so think about that song then. How do we raise our Ebenezer? If Jesus Christ lives in us, and always we have this rock of our help living with us, we are this, right? We are the monument of his goodness and grace to the fact that he takes the sinful stranger and he brings them back into the fold, taking our sin, nailing it to the cross. We are monuments of his help and his glory here on earth. What he has done, he has done to us and through us. When we want to glorify God, we do it by preaching his word. We do it by praying to him. We do it by doing the things he's told us to do because he is with us. He is in us. And now we have this freedom from sin because of what he's done for us. I mean, think about Romans 8. I could read the whole chapter to you. But how does it start? There's therefore no con now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of sin or the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. We are free from sin because of what he has done for us. 
incredible. Now, so for the unbeliever, what's the instruction here? Repent. Turn from your idols. Direct your heart to the Lord. Believe that He can save you, that He's risen from the dead, and you can be saved. He can save you, and He will. Call upon His name and be saved. What about for the believer? Repent and believe. He has saved you for now and always. We never stop needing that message. Repent and believe. Live in such a way to show that you are His. Let us do that. Let us turn from our sin and direct our hearts to Him in true repentance. It's right to feel sorrow for your sin, but sorrow that isn't accompanied by change is just a show. Remember in Christ that we have been set free from sin and death. And how do we change? How do we do that? Well, let us pray. Let us seek prayer with one another and for one another. We need to hear the gospel together. We need to hear it preached on Sundays. We need to hear it preached throughout the week. We need to always have the gospel on our lips, in our minds. We need to read it. We need to study it. Because we need to remember and let us remember that there is no help beside the gospel of Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the rock of our help. You are our Ebenezer. You are our monument of faith. You are the one that we rely on. You are our victorious one, and in you we share victory. And so let us, Lord, come to you in faith and repentance, a repentance that's not only sorry for our sin, but one that represents change, represents us continuing to see that you have made us more and more like yourself and to live in light of that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.